All right, guys, last um, topic in ecology is conservation of biodiversity. So how do we maintain these great ecosystems that we've got? One of the things that is going to threaten our biodiversity is the introduction of alien species. An alien species is a species that is not endemic to the area. Endemic means that it's a species that evolved in the area to the conditions. Alien species are brought in and they're brought in for a variety of reasons. Often they're brought in for food sources. So when we talk about the chytrid fungus in California that was caused by an alien species, the bullfrog, that was brought by miners from the Midwest as a food source. They are brought in for biological control. We might think like this is an amazing idea. I can get rid of the aphids in my garden by bringing in ladybugs but the ladybugs don't stay in my garden. They go elsewhere. And once I bring in this other species, it starts disrupting the food chain. And sometimes it's just accidental. I could have a ball python as a pet and it escapes and now it's taking over the Everglades. The problem with an introduced species or an alien species is that they have no native predator. Nothing knows that it's good to eat. And the things that are native to the area aren't afraid of it. And so when you think about like, pythons in the Everglades, these birds don't know to be afraid of the snake or the deer don't know to be afraid of the snake. And so it's easier for that snake to eat. Often our alien species are generalists, that they're not that picky about what they eat. They're not that picky about where they live. And so they're able to thrive anywhere. So biological control, again, release of the ladybugs to eat aphids. They're highly mobile, so it's hard to keep them contained in an area. An example of an accidental release is the golden apple snail in Taiwan. They were produced as a food source. Like, hey, here's this cheap way to get protein in the hands of the people. The people didn't like them, and so they threw them out, and then they took over the rice patties. The problem is rice is a staple of the Taiwanese diet, and now these golden apple snails, which were supposed to be food, were eating the main food source. And then deliberate release, they took the golden apple snail and they put it into rice paddies in Southeast Asia to reduce the population of local snails that were carrying disease, not realizing that these snails would wipe out rice paddies. Great videos here. Um, the giant Florida snails, like the palm of your hand. So definitely watch the videos. So what's the impact? It's competition. So these guys, because they're generalists, because they don't have any native predators are going to outcompete the endemic species. They are going to take over territory, take over food sources, and they're going to cause things to die. Predation, um, they are going to, again, feed off of native species and they're gonna do it very well. And to the point where they're gonna put things to extinction. The brown tree snake is the classic example that I love. Think about 2000 snakes on our campus. So 2000 snakes per square mile on Guam. You guys on the next um, slide, there is the video about how we got our tree snakes to Guam and the impact. Not only did it cause most bird species on Guam to go extinct, but now because there are so many snakes, they get up in the power lines and they short out the power. So when the snake gets fried by the electrical lines, it then shorts out that part of the island. 
uh, cane toad video. This is a problem in Australia. They actually have cane toad hunts that you can go on to try and get rid of the cane toads. Here's our brown tree snake. There has been a lot of things to try and get rid of the brown tree snake, including airdropping mice that have been stuffed with Tylenol from planes um, because the Tylenol will kill the snakes. Biomagnification and bioaccumulation are two different things, but they're things that we need to worry about. Biomagnification is where a toxic substance, usually mercury is one that we worry about, builds up in the muscle of organisms. And so as you go up the food chain, you end up with more and more mercury in that organism. And when you reach a critical point, that mercury will cause damage or death. When we talk biomagnification, again, mercury, the other one is DDT. The buildup of DDT through bioaccumulation is what led to the near extinction of all of our large predatory birds because as it got to this critical level in the bird's tissue, when the birds laid eggs, the eggs were soft and so mama bird went and sat on the egg and squished her baby. Bioaccumulation is the animal takes in a small amount of the chemical without pooping it out and that builds up in the organism. So you have bioaccumulation at the low level and then biomagnification as it goes up the food chain. DDT, classic example again, predatory birds. Um, this is what almost caused the California condor to go extinct. The controversy with DDT is it was and still is the best pesticide that we have ever created. And once we banned DDT, now we had an uptick in malaria because DDT was used to control the amount of mosquitoes within these villages. And so are we prioritizing people or are we prioritizing the environment? It's very easy for Americans to get rid of DDT because we don't have malaria. I mean, the worst thing that happened when we got rid of DDT was the influx now of bed bugs. But if you live in a small African country, now we get rid of DDT and you have villages dying of malaria. Interesting um, video kind of intro, it's just the trailer of the video. This three billion and counting talks about the idea who's more important, nature or man. Microplastics are the newest battle that we're facing. And so anytime you buy the little cleansers like the ones down here that have the exfoliants, say that word 10 times fast, the exfoliants, they're little microplastics. And so then they go down your drain and they go out into the ocean and other organisms are eating it and ingesting it and it's building up in their tissues and in their guts and causing poisoning. So we really do wanna start banning down these microplastics. The alternative is to do these exfoliants with sugar, which then when it gets wet, just dissolves. Macroplastic is large pieces of plastic and that becomes a problem as well. We start to see it in these gyres. This is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. The problem is a lot of this now has been broken down by the sun and the wave action. And so the macroplastic turns into microplastic. You think, well, why can't I just go and start scooping the stuff out of the ocean? Well, one, that would take a lot of money and the right machinery. And we are trying to do that, but a lot of it is now really dissolved microplastics, which are harder to separate from the water. 
we're going to uh, monitor environmental change. And one of the ways we're going to do that is by looking at the Trent Biotic Index. Trent Biotic Index says, look, there are animals that like really clean areas and there are animals that like really dirty areas. And then there's some that fall right in the middle. If I go out and monitor my area, knowing that these insect larvae only thrive in dirty, disturbed ecosystems, and that's what I find, I can say, well, this is a dirty, disturbed ecosystem. Whereas if I go out and I monitor and I find these insect larvae that only thrive if it's a pristine ecosystem, I can make that judgment as well. Here's what the Trimbiotic Index looks like. These are some of the insect larvae that you're looking for. And then based on what you find, right, you can judge the pollution level of your area. Simpson's Diversity Index. Some of you guys have done this last year in APES, but it's a way of looking at two areas and figuring out how diverse it is. We want our environments, our ecosystems to be highly diverse. A highly diverse ecosystem is resilient to change. If you go out and there's a million species in your ecosystem, but it's all the same, so you have a million dandelions, that's low biodiversity. If you go out and you have a million plants, but there's like 15 or 20 different species, now you have high biodiversity. So using the math here, you can figure out the diversity of your area. And you guys are gonna have to do this. This is gonna be one of your labs. I'm not gonna go into the math, but you do have to watch this video, this video of how to do this scary thing. He goes through the process of using this mathematical equation. There's also some notes here, but guys, let me tell you, I didn't even really understand it that well until I watched the video on the previous slide. Why do we want to conserve biodiversity? First of all, is just ethical, right? That whole man over nature or nature over man, we need to live in symbiosis with nature. We need to preserve nature because nature has its place. There are ecological reasons. Realize that we are part of the ecosystem. And if I destroy my ecosystem, if I destroy all of the plants, or if I poison my oceans, those plants and oceans are giving me something I need, mainly oxygen, but also food. And if I destroy that, then I don't get what I need to continue to survive. We also know that our weather patterns change. If we don't conserve our biodiversity, if we wreck our environments, we can have issues with our weather. Well, then the weather is gonna impact human life. All of this comes back to, at the end of the day, we need to do it because the environment is awesome. But if we wreck the environment, we wreck humans. There are economical reasons. Think about our area in California, tourism's huge. If we make California a cesspot, people aren't gonna to wanna to come here and they're not gonna spend their money. And then aesthetic reasons, that whole idea of nature bathing, where you go out into nature. I go on a hike after a stressful day and I just feel better. That's the aesthetic reasons for conserving biodiversity. We're gonna do this through a couple of ways. One is active management. I'm gonna control those alien species. I'm going to have border checks coming in out of my state to make sure people aren't bringing invasive species in. And then I'm going to have citizen science. I'm gonna have um, groups that are gonna go out and pull out invasive plants. This is really important right now after our wildfires because the plants are gonna try and populate into these areas that have been cleared by fire tend to be invasive first. And if I can go in and pull the invasive stuff that's trying to take root, I leave space for my native species. 
I'm going to restore degraded areas. I'm going to go into areas where, you know, in the 60s and 70s, we thought it was great to concrete our riverbeds, gets the water out to the ocean faster, less flooding, less human impact. But it also took away habitat. We are going in now and breaking up that concrete and restoring these areas to what the stream beds should look like. I'm going to promote the recovery of threatened species. Sometimes I'm going to breed animals in the zoo and then release them in the wild, like the California condor. And I'm going to control the exploration of humans. So we're going to control poaching, we're going to control mining. I'm going to make sure that when you go into any of our regional parks that you don't take your dog that could scare away native species. In situ conservation means that I'm going to do it in its natural habitat. The advantages to this is the animals that are in that natural habitat stay adapted to that natural habitat. They maintain their behaviors that they need in the wild. They're going to interact with each other. They're going to fulfill their niche. It's going to allow for a gene pool that stays there with good genetic diversity, and we're going to protect the habitat. The way we're going to do this is through biological reserves. We want large reserves because they're going to promote conservation better than small reserves. Um, realize things like a mountain lion need a huge reserve. They need a huge territory to roam. They could move five, six, seven miles in a day. Edge effect is this idea that we have weird biodiversity on the edge of these preserves. And that's because the organisms that live in the edge are bridging both society, human ecology, and now the ecology of the reserve. When I talk about edge, if most of you guys live on the edge of some of these preserves, and we have animals like possums and coyotes and raccoons and bobcats that are going to come out at night, feed within your neighborhoods, and then go back into the reserve during the day, to rest and sleep and hide. If I were to look at the biodiversity of the edge, it's going to be higher than what the reserve actually should have. We have wildlife corridors that if I can't maintain one large reserve, I can maintain a bunch of little ones. And then I'm gonna have these wildlife corridors, these natural kind of pathways for animals to go from one to the other. Think about O'Neill and then Riley Wilderness on both sides of Kodo. Those are both preserves. And then we have the riverbed that runs along Antonio. That is a corridor to get the animals from one reserve to the next. XU2 is our habitat's no longer great for these organisms. And so I'm gonna pull the organism out of its habitat and maintain it in the zoo. It keeps the species alive, but it doesn't maintain their natural um, behaviors. And it's really hard to take an organism that was in situ or ex situ um, that is in a zoo and release it back into the wild. We can't take the cheetahs from the San Diego Zoo and put them back in Africa. They wouldn't survive. Extinction of a species, um, it used to be permanent. Now we've got the science of de-extinction. But our current records show that we have 4,500 animals and 20,000 plants at risk for extinction. And your named example here is the dodo. The dodo bird went extinct recently. It lived on Mariatis off of Africa, lived on fruit and nuts. And when the people brought in sheep and then they brought their sheep dogs, 
the dodo was a great source of food for the dogs and the rats and the pigs and the things that were settled then brought by humans onto Mariatis Island. And in 1680, the last dodo went extinct and that's what the bird looked like. So named example, dodo bird, recent extinction. Another one is a Tasmanian tiger, lived on Tasmania, large carnivorous uh, marsupial, became extinct in 1938, so less than 100 years ago, and it was hunted to death, essentially. Great video here. Um, if you're looking like, I really love science, but everything's been done, and if you really love genetics, the science of de-extinction is coming up, and they're looking at bringing back the Tasmanian tiger because they've got cells, and so then they can clone this guy. And that is the end of lecture.